Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4. That's where we'll pick up with our series that we began months ago. We've spent the month of December uh, discussing Advent, where we started in Genesis and we finished up last week in Revelation. We get back to our study in Acts. Now next week, that'll be the first week of the new year. Uh, You don't need to come back to church on Sundays until next year. Everybody always laughs at those jokes. It's always funny. They're just as corny as they've ever been, but it always gets a laugh. But that's the truth, and that'll be our communion Sunday. And we'll also spend our time in the Word uh, answering the question, why study catechism? Uh, We're going to do that on Wednesday evenings in our Bible study. This will be the New City Catechism. There are 52 uh, installments, a question and an answer, and it's meant to teach us theology. We'll do that on Wednesday nights, but we'll also say those, the question and the answer, as part of our service uh, for this next year, and we'll begin that next week. But for today, and then for two weeks from now, we will wrap up. Acts chapter 4 and begin Acts chapter 5. So let me read this to you, the last few verses beginning in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word, and let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the last Sunday of the year. We thank you for Christmas and for the truth of what we've learned in your word as to what it means to us that you became a human and dwelt among us in order to die, to pay for our sins, to make us your own, to live with you eternally, to fix what went wrong in the garden. Lord, would you feed us from this portion from the book of Acts today? And Lord, may it be useful thinking of a new year, a new piece of paper from which to start again, perhaps. Lord, we are mindful of those that are in hospitals right now within this church body and others that are family of this family. Lord, we need a special measure of your love and your comfort. Lord, for this holiday season, it's been very difficult for many And, Lord, we would be remiss without remembering them to you. Lord, we ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, what we've got in front of us with this last little piece of chapter 4 in the book of Acts is not much different if you were to look back to the end of chapter 2. The end of chapter 2, there was somewhat of a summary of what had taken place in chapters 1 and 2. And what we just looked at is a summary of what happened in chapters 3 and 4. We call this somewhat of an interlude before Luke, the storyteller, recording history, actual events with actual people. Before he gets into new material, he seems to summarize what has gone on before. And just like with the first one, we'll need to be mindful with this second one. This is not to say that the early church was perfect. I know when, when we read through the end of chapter 2 where they're, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and they're uh, fervent in their prayers and they're breaking bread in one another's homes, it looks as if it was perfect. And then when we read here that no one was needy, that the people that had enough were selling stuff in order to give to people who didn't have enough. And it's kind of like looking back at uh, family pictures from decades earlier and thinking, wasn't life so simple and beautiful then? It'd be nice to go back in the time machine and see what happened before and after the picture was snapped. Probably yelling at the kids to straighten up and quit goofing off. I've, I've thought about putting one of the pictures in the chapel chimes that was taken immediately before the picture that I sent to Joe Fort uh, and the, the search committee so you could see what we look like. <laughs> well, we had the camera on a tripod and we're out on the deck with the sun in our faces and right before one of the pictures, I grabbed one of my boys and the, the moment was captured so I have my favorite picture, and then I have the picture you all saw. Um, one of these days, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll bring it out. But we need to remember that there's no perfect church, not even at the beginning. That church, even at the beginning, was full of sinners, and it wouldn't be long before a church full of sinners is a church full of problems. Same as a church like this is full of problems because we have problems because we are sinners, saved by grace, on our way to heaven, and it's good for us to be together, to hold each other accountable, to encourage one another, to read this book and find out the way we're supposed to be living, and then try again each week. There's a reason we do all this. We'll just make sure that when we look at these snapshots, even if Luke gives them to us, we look at them realistically. What we'll do is divide what we read in, in two portions. We'll look at it in two pieces. First, there's a general description of, of the way this church looked. And then there's a specific example of the way they were. And that's uh, Barnabas and his generosity. So if we're tracking with, with Luke all the way up until this point, God was adding to this church daily. Every time we read, it's bigger than it was before. The, the first count was 3,000. The second count was 5,000. That's still not even a drop in the bucket as far as the population of Jerusalem. But the church is growing. And the way we chose to summarize this book, anywhere you open in the book of Acts, it's the same theme. The Word of God is going out. And that is the message of what Jesus did when he was here. And these eyewitnesses are telling that story, that he did miracles, that he was crucified, buried, risen again, ascended into heaven. 
for your salvation, that story goes out and people keep coming. God keeps bringing people into the churches. Their lives are changed. And the family gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, that's what's happening now. And when we pick up in that 32nd verse, now the full number, this is all of them, of those who believed, believed what? The word of God that went out, were of one heart and one soul. That shouldn't be surprising. If, if you went from blind to seeing, from deaf to hearing, to lost to found, and this is new to you, it all comes together, then if what's most important in your life is sorted and there are others in close proximity to you whose most important parts of their life is sorted, then you've got quite the thing in common. But for right now, and I'm going to take a wild guess, that when we read through that, probably the thing that caught your attention was not this uh, commonality, but the fact that people were selling their houses and giving the money to the church. We're going to hold on that. We'll talk about that, but not at the beginning, because that's not the first thing that Luke told us. You ever know that there's sometimes a strategic way to wade into certain situations? You, there's certain things you might say before you, you know, drop the bomb or, or whatever it is you've got to discuss. Well, he starts by telling us that these people that are of one heart and one soul are those who believed. And that helps us sort those things. And then take that up just a notch. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. It's an interesting way to put that. No one said or no one would talk about what they had was their, was their own. I think we get the picture. And again, he's still not giving us an explanation as to what's going on just yet. So we won't worry about the selling of houses and stuff. But I thought one way to probably illustrate this. Um, think about it the way it works in your home. And how often do you inside your family with your kids say that this is mine or this is yours or this is ours? I know that goes on. We don't share toothbrushes at the Mooneyham home. I have my toothbrush. Michael has his toothbrush. Ben has his toothbrush if we can find it. We've got backups in case. And there may be times where I'll, you know, hand out some pearls of wisdom about how things should be and how a milk jug should not be put back in the refrigerator empty, especially if it's the same day that it was brought home full. And, uh, you know, there's a movie. I remember watching it as a child that was called Yours, Mine, and Ours. I think they made a, a remake of it. But it was where a widower with a bunch of kids and a widow with a bunch of kids got married. And then they all moved in a big old house. And there's a scene in there where you find out why the movie's named that. Because these kids get into this big fight. And then uh, I think it's Henry Fonda lays down the law. There's no more yours and there's no more mine. There's only ours. And yeah, we're going to have our own toothbrushes, our own pillows, our own clothes. 
But you would say there's something dreadfully wrong in a family if one person at the table has nothing and other people at the table have more than enough. That there would be someone in the home who's going without certain things that are necessities, but other people inside the same home that say they're from the same family and they've got plenty. Probably be a good way to at least think of it in your head. What's going on here is that their spiritual purpose was so important to them at this point in the early church that material possessions took a back seat. It didn't mean that they didn't have personal possessions. It didn't mean that some had more than others, but that those possessions were less important than the one thing they had together, and that was growing this family so more and more could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to make sure we don't miss the fact that so far nothing has been said about compulsion or rules or regulations or pledges. All of this is voluntary and it'll stay that way through the book of Acts and the New Testament for that matter. There's no compulsory giving. So now I think we're ready to skip ahead to the example. And this is the good example, by the way. When, when we get to chapter 5 in two weeks, we're going to see that it starts with the word but to connect that to the end of chapter 4, what we're reading now. And what we're reading in chapter 4 is a good example of this guy named Barnabas who gives free will gift to the church. Then we're going to read in chapter 5 of this couple who sells some land, gives it to the church, but lies about how much it was. We're going to find out that that doesn't end too well for them and is a glaring example that God takes sin seriously. So, bad example in two weeks. Good example this morning. And the fellow's name is Joseph. But they called him Barnabas. And it was in all probability a wealthy man. A lot of details given about this guy. Interestingly enough, we don't really connect a lot of these dots. But the people that were reading this that knew these folks would. He was the brother of Mary. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Mary, that is the Mary who was wealthy whose home the disciples gathered in often. Um, Her son was John Mark. We remember him. And we'll know that John Mark is the one that Paul is going to later say, I don't want him on the missionary journey with me anymore because he's useless to me. And then later, before he dies, he'll say he's useful to me and the ministry. These dots will connect later, but this would make Barnabas John Mark's uncle He's from Cyprus and was a Levite. Big deal. It is a big deal. He was a real person who knew real people from a real place called Cyprus and was a Levite. I like the fact that Luke gives these details. It it builds the story and his credibility that these things took place. But if you really want to know what the New Testament appreciates about Joseph, who's named Barnabas by the apostles, You'll need to know what Barnabas means, and Luke tells us. means son of encouragement. How many, if you're filling out a little questionnaire, I know you've got to fill those out. It, it, you feel like at the, at the going rate, by the time we hit the next decade, we'll have to fill out forms and take tests every day. Here, stick this up your nose and fill this out. Um, it's just endless. I mean, I've got a procedure on Wednesday. They're, they already sent me a text message to go with the email, to go with a phone call, to fill out the piece of paper so that I can pre-register 
so that when I get there an hour early, I won't have to sit there and fill out the paper. I can just listen to, I guess, my iPod or whatever. If you had on that form, would you like encouragement, yes or no? Yes, please. How many of you need encouragement? How about the good kind, the kind that comes from a brother or sister in Christ? Did Jesus encourage? Yeah. Did people that acted like him? Yeah. Now, there is such a thing as flattery, which uh, can be veiled as encouragement and is from the devil. But to come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage them. I wish I could say I didn't want it. I wish I could say I didn't need it. I wish I could say that I can prop myself up every morning, get out of bed, put on my clothes, get to work, enjoy the tar out of it. But I'm not built that way, and neither is anybody else. We need encouragement. This fellow was called the son of encouragement, as if encouragement had a son and his name was Barnabas. He just seemed to wherever he was, the people that he left when he went on were encouraged. And we'll, we'll learn more about this guy. Everybody needs a Barnabas and everybody needs a Paul. Paul will whip you into shape and Barnabas will come along later and uh, help you know that Paul doesn't hate you. That's, that's the way that diversity of gifts go. The example being used here to describe how the church was is this fellow Barnabas. He sells a piece of land, gives the proceeds to the church. And one commentator had said he transferred wealth from one sector to another. If, if you watch the uh, business channels where you get your news and the little stuff's running across the bottom of the screen, you're going to hear about rates being raised and uh, sector rotation. People will be pulling money out of stocks because that's risky and putting it into fixed things because the rates are going to raise. And uh, it's just pulling money out of one place and sticking it to another. That might not be a bad way to describe this. That The church is growing. This man who encourages is watching what God is doing. And he's saying, you know what? I got this dirt over here, but I think I'd rather invest in this happening right here. And he gives it to the apostles. It's up to the apostles to do with it as they see fit under the Lord. Barnabas doesn't worry anymore. It's theirs. It's a gift. No strings. So what does all this mean? Well, there's one phrase that I think will be the key to us either getting something out of this or not getting anything at all out of it. And that is the phrase, and great grace was upon them all. I think that's how you account for all of it. I think that's how you account for different people from different walks of life being of one heart, being on the same page, and certainly sharing their stuff with one another. What makes Christians uh, fit for the presence of God? His son's righteousness on their behalf. Grace. We're not fit for God's presence because of sin way back to the garden, but because of salvation, grace, provisionally, our account is paid up. What allows us to love one another? What allows us not to be scoundrels? Grace. 
if we're going to be generous instead of being stingy, it's going to be by grace. This is described as great grace. And there's, there's other things that the word great describes here. There's at least two results in this passage that seem to fall out of this great grace that is upon them all. When God's hand of grace is upon a church, it might follow that we should expect to see these results as well. First, they gave their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus with great power. Now, make sure we're true to the words here. They gave their testimony of the resurrection. A lot of times there's emphasis put on your personal testimony, which is your story of what Jesus did for you and how he saved you. That's your testimony, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the testimony of what Jesus did here on earth. That's what he told uh, the disciples before he ascended into heaven. Uh, Teach them everything that I have commanded you. So it's not that it's your story that saves the lost. It's my story that saves the lost. And you can have your story too, but you're preaching my story. That's why after uh, baptism when we have them read from a page, we call that a confession. They're confessing what they believe to be true of Jesus' testimony of having died in our place. That's what they're preaching, and it's with great power. And if you're ever going to get any traction with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's by His grace. No mortal man's going to stand up, open his mouth, and anything of spiritual eternity ever take place. Uh, One of the pastors I enjoy reading and listening to, Alistair Begg, talked about his professor over across the pond uh, in a preaching class took them all to the top of a hill, probably a beautiful place, Scotland, to a cemetery, and then told them, now, raise the dead. Now I'll look at him like, he's finally lost his mind. He said, that's exactly what you're called to do, but you'll only do it through the Word of God. That will raise the dead, the dead in their trespasses and sins. They'll be alive spiritually, You'll spend eternity with them, but remember how it's done. Well, that was the first thing that happened because of this great grace. They preach with great power. Second, there's great generosity. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. This wasn't because they were all rich. Now, there are preachers that will tell you if you get saved, he wants you rich. only problem is... There were people in the scriptures that seems he wanted poor. There was a purpose in that. Uh, I'm going to conclude here with a rich young ruler who had a big problem. And then Jesus said, it, it's very difficult for rich people to get into heaven. Why in the world would he want to make us where we're in a position of difficulty to receive what he came here to give us? It doesn't make sense. So it's not that they're all rich. It just means for some reason, that they all make sure that no one is poor. Verse 32, it said, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was enough resources in the early church that no one needed to need, I guess would be as clearly as we could say it. And this is where we probably need to slow down. And we'll stay slow until uh, two weeks from now when we pick up the money topic again. I'm sure somebody in the room's already thought he's going to talk about money at the beginning of the year right after Christmas when we still have the decorations up. Is he crazy? 
No, Luke's crazy. And the Holy Spirit was crazy to get us started in time for it to land right here. This is where it needs to land. And it's what we need to study. We should slow down because it's talking about money and because we look at money differently. Because each of our accounts probably have different amounts. And I'm not necessarily talking about bank accounts. Certain things are the same for all of us. We each have 24 hours in a day. Nobody's richer or poorer in that regard. Some of us have big families. Some of us have small families. Some of us have a lot of friends. Some of us have few friends. But we look at it differently, and we're naturally going to see it differently. So we'll have to be careful to make sure we don't read into this passage something it doesn't say and make sure we pull everything out of it that it does say. It's not describing that, as some have said, you might find folks who want to say that this is the starter kit for communism. This isn't communism because it's different than communism. If it was the starter kit, well, they got off the rails somewhere. For one reason, they did not abolish private property. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. We'll be clear in the next chapter because people are still selling things that are their own. Second reason was that the selling and liquidation of these resources was not by force. It wasn't compulsory. It's free choice of those who owned the resources. I don't know that we need to get mixed up in that just yet. But the expression should still be striking. They had everything in common. And I searched for an illustration of this. What's a good way to describe a group of people that has everything in common? I don't know. Sometimes you bump up against that or you find yourself right in the middle of it at certain places uh, in life. I've sat quietly in a Hardee's one morning just at, in awe of a group of elderly men with the veterans' hats on um, having an absolute ball that I don't think anybody else in the planet could get in on what they had together, but it was born out of absolute pain at some point. Um, at Word of Life, I left um, home right after uh, high school. My sister went with me. She's 18 months Younger, but she skipped a year up, so we both went to college at the same time. That was a Bible school. It's a year program, nine months worth of learning only the Bible, and then three months of working in their camp. Um, it was about 80 some of us. We were young. We were learning things about the Bible we'd never seen before. We were brothers and sisters in Christ, and we didn't have anything. I mean, I drove down there in uh, an old 86 Chevrolet with the trunk was a different color and still had the, uh, the chalk from the junkyard number on the back of the trunk. But it got us down there somewhere around, I don't know, south of the border. The air condition went out on the way to Florida. Um, but we just had... It didn't matter we didn't have anything. And we'd share stuff with each other. I remember our room would like pitch in on a loaf of bread, a stack of sandwich cheese, and one kid had a George Foreman grill, and we would pump as many grilled cheeses out of that after study hours as as we could do. We had a ball. We were of one mind, it seemed. 
And we left, we got married, we had children, we still talked to so many of us. Uh, You fill in the blank, but you know it when you've got it. And if it should be true of any group of people, it should be true of those that are redeemed from their sins and on their way to heaven, you would think. And when you find a good church, you can almost know it when you walk in the door. And if it isn't, you can almost tell when you walk in the door. It's a strange thing, and it might take a while to, to build up a sensitivity to know it when you see it or feel it or hear it. But if we need a, a benchmark, there's, there's this rich young ruler. I said we'd get to him. And I don't know that any more could be said in three words than that, if you're painting a mental picture. He's rich. He's got money. He's young. Oh, the riches that are spent after youth has, has left that's always a fun thing to watch, isn't it? What people spend their money on to try to look younger when everybody knows you can't do that. But we'll chase it. Nobody wants to die, and we start worrying about that early. He's rich, and he's young, and he's a ruler. He's in charge. People know his name. They get out of his way. If anybody wants to be anybody, they want to be this guy. And they know when he walks up, and he asks Jesus, what do I need to have eternal life? And Jesus kind of gives him a softball. Well, you know the basics. Well, I've done that since I was a kid. All right, well, then there's a fast pitch right to the forehead. Why don't you try taking everything you have, selling it all, give it to the poor, and then come follow me? Now, does that match up with what Luke is saying the early church is like? No one's being asked to sell everything and give it to the poor. No, what Jesus is doing is testing this fellow, which is what he does to us. You ask Jesus a question, he'll ask you three back. And what it meant was that are you willing to take rich young ruler, which was top of the priority list for this young guy, and put it under poor, insignificant nobody who follows Jesus? And he wouldn't make that trade. So he walked away. And then this golden learning opportunities there for the disciples who are standing there with their mouth open. Guy walks in, right time, right place, right question, right person to ask, wrong reaction. And Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to get to heaven. And then Peter seems to, for once, have the right thing to say. Well, then, Lord, who can be saved? And it wasn't because Peter was rich, because Peter's a fisherman, and fishermen aren't rich, usually. Unless they own a lot of boats, and he didn't. What he meant by that is if this rich young ruler was going to back up the truck and drop all the rich and the young and the ruler, then I'd be the first one to want to go grab it all up. So if you're saying it's, it's rich, it's hard for a rich thinking person who values those things to get into heaven, we're all in trouble. And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And this is when Peter comes back and says, well, we've left everything to follow you. And this is what Jesus says at response to that statement. Truly, I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to pay you back with much interest. There's one part of that verse that I think we read over because we're so programmed to think that all of that is later in heaven. You know, you, 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 you store up treasure for heaven rather than here. That's what Barnabas is doing. He's cashing in some land for earthly, earthly land for heavenly treasure. Jesus said, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I'm not going to let you starve now. Now, I've only been here this fourth Christmas, fourth New Year. Um, I know many of you better than I knew you when I got here three and a half years ago. At the Tabernacle, that's Virginia, that's, that's where most of my, my development took place. A lot of my thinking, illustrations, whatever else. But I know of people that are there who, when they were saved... Their family basically ignored them. Wouldn't say disowned them, but it's just this person walked away from a certain lifestyle and, and there, there's just nothing in common anymore. And with tears at one point, I remember one person in particular saying, I lost what I had, but I gained more than I could ever imagine. I never knew people could be so loving and kind. Um, that people could see me inside here like I never thought that I could ever be seen by another human being. Now, this is great grace, of course. Um, some people lose in a business. They do the right thing. They find out they're on the wrong side of company policy. I think the Lord will fix you up. Maybe not equal, Maybe more, maybe less, but he's got you covered. So how should all this shape the church today? Wake Chapel, right here, right now. We, we looked at the wasness. What about the isness? And for two weeks from now, and the balance of what we've got here, we're almost done. I think it'll be safer to proceed with some presumptions again that most of us are able to identify with great grace comes a, a, a great um, unity and also great generosity. But we're going to have to be honest with each other. If we're going to let go of our stuff, we've probably got some questions, don't we? Um, one of them, okay, is it just Christians that we owe something to or are obligated as, as Christians? God expect us take care of one another. We see that here. But is it all Christians? What about that church's Christians and that church's Christians? What if that church isn't taking as good a care of their Christians? Um, and then what about the lost world? You know, we have something they didn't have. We have TV and internet and we see the commercials and we know that there isn't medicine in some places. We know the water's dirty. We know they don't have food to eat. We know it's awful. We can see it with our eyes in commercial format. Call this number. We have obligations to them. And then 
those of us like myself, you'll relate to this. I like to give, but I don't like to be taken advantage of. I don't like to be scammed. I've been scammed. I've listened to a story, walked to the the car, followed a guy to a gas station, pumped his tank full of gas, got back to the office, sat down, took a call from the lady I know at the gas station who says, hey, he came in and I had to refund him all that money. And I said, are you sure? She said, no, you can't suck gas out of a tank, but he tried. (laughs) Um, And you just think, well, one bad idiot hardens my heart against all the others who probably are in need. How do I navigate through all this? Well, we'll have to ask questions like that. But would you be surprised if I told you that in our New Testament, all three of those concerns are addressed, two of them in the book of Acts? And we'll look at those. There's help for those types of questions. Uh, In Galatians 10, it says, So, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Okay, that's Christians. That second question Uh, In Acts 11, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. So before was everyone who had opportunity. Second, everyone who had ability. This is still optional. To send relief to brothers living in Judea. So they're in Jerusalem, but they're going to send it to Judea. And they did so by the hand of, look at here, Barnabas, the encouraging guy. And Paul, his sidekick. That's chapter 11. And then in Acts 6, there's this problem with widows who aren't being taken care of. And they get a panel of six guys, the starter kit for a deacon's ministry, to untangle that barrel of fish hooks so that the church can go on without a scandal. So all of these are, 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 are carried out. They're explained. But we've got to have sense to know and the Holy Spirit to help us understand how to apply this to where we are. But again, today, we don't need to overthink this. We've got time and passages to look at later. But I think the point of this passage is clear, and we'll leave it at this. Those of us in this church who have enough should be willing to give to those in this church should they have less than enough. What would make sense in your family should make sense in your church family. If there's someone without a need, and boy, we're going to have a party when we start talking about the difference between a need and a want. And everybody's got a slider where, you know, well, I need this, and I need this, and oh, this is all I need, and no, I need that too. No, that's a want. Says who? I think it's a need. And on and on and on. But just to make it as simple as we can, You'd say there's something wrong with a church where there's somebody who has a need and others that have more than they need. We should know each other well enough. And folks, fourth Christmas here, every Christmas I'll get a call or seven from a Sunday school class or someone in the hallway and they always ask me the same thing. Do you know of anybody in this church that has a need? Sunday school classes take up money for that. And then they try to find somebody who has a need. Individuals do that. You're doing that already. Maybe not everybody. I just thought that worth a mention. That's an encouragement to me. In a church this size, 
in this modern age, a lot of that is done through your tithes and offerings. Not all giving is a la carte. In fact, if all giving is a la carte, it's kind of hard to organize a church this large and pay all its bills. Well, we got enough missionary money, we can't pay the power bill. You know, designations can get <laughs> complicated and convoluted sometimes. But what it works with and, and thrives on is a trust between leadership to spend and distribute it according with Scripture and a generous body who's generous because of great grace. And I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. This isn't only limited to money. In fact, that's probably one of the smaller parts of it. We're all rich or poor in different ways. Money's one of those ways. But back to what was said earlier. Do you have a big family? You're rich. Do you have children? You're rich. Does everybody have children? No. Does everybody have a big family? No. How much premium do you put on genuine hospitality? This is a hospitable church. I mean the real kind. And you know it when you feel it, when it's extended to you. Hospitality. That, that's Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He's hospitable with his time. In America, uh, not only do we have an, an, an confusion about wealth and money and what it's really worth, we have a bigger problem, I think, and that's with individuality. And not only is my money mine, but my time is mine. And my image is mine. And people who seem to excel at guarding their money, their time, their image, their, their self, seem to be the most dreadfully miserable people, uh, scientists tell us. But then on the other side of it, you feel like, everybody in the world has a piece of my time. I can't answer all these calls. I can't answer all these emails. I, I, I can't respond to all these texts. I can't. And I've got to figure out which ones I do and which ones I don't and which ones I, I want to think that I don't care about them and ones that I can afford. You know, and isn't it usually the, the Barnabases who can take not getting a return text better than others? But this is a world I'm living in, right? You live in it, don't you? So what do you do? Guard it all and go crazy or give it all and there's nothing left? There will have to be some type of balance in there. We'll have to take our instruction from the scriptures. Look at how Jesus ran his life and the disciples and these others. And then on the end of it all, knowing that we have the cure to what ails this world, not in their bodies, but in their souls. And to what extent will we go to make sure that they have what they need? 